The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. And uh, and before I do anything else, my wife is reminding me to dismiss the classes to Sunday school. So you guys can go out if you'd like. Invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. And we're going to read from verse uh, 1 all the way through to verse 17. And then we'll just touch the last two verses, 25, or 24 and 25. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 17, and then verses 24 and 25. There is a uh, note sheet in your bulletin there. And by the way, on the back side of the note sheet, in case you hadn't noticed, I know somebody had been handing these out and didn't notice all the way through, that there is the uh, Bible study questions on the back side of that. So if you miss the emails and text messages, they are there on the back side of the the bulletin, or the back side of the note sheet. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 12 of the book of Acts, the Bible says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards were in front of the door, were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter aside and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second gate, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that, were, all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. And over to verse uh, 24 and 25, and the Bible says, But the word of the Lord continued. I beg your pardon. Let's back up um, to verse 20. Verse 20. It says, Now he was very angry, that's Herod, with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. 
But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of His precious word. What's happening in the text? What's happening in the story of the book of Acts? In chapter 2, we saw how God sent His Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and many were saved, and the church is founded in Jerusalem. In chapter 3, we saw how God uses Peter and John in healing a lame man outside the temple. In chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and threatened and released. And in chapter 5, God uses Peter to expose Ananias and Sapphira's sin. In chapter 5, also, God frees the apostles who have been arrested again and then allows them to suffer a beating for their witness for Christ. In chapter 6, God raises up deacons to serve in the church. And in chapter 7, the deacon Stephen gives a brilliant defense of the faith before the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 8, God allows Stephen's life to be taken in martyrdom. God allows persecution to come through Saul's hand, and the church is scattered and spread out, witnessing for Christ. Chapter 8, we see that God uses Philip to preach the gospel to Samaria and to an Ethiopian. The gospel travels down to Africa. In chapter 9, God confronts Saul and saves him, and the first persecution comes to an end. In chapter 9, again, God uses uh, Peter to minister the gospel in Lydda and Joppa. In chapter 10, God uses Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In chapter 11, we saw that God plants a church in Antioch through unknown witnesses, and then God moves Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he collects Saul from Tarsus, and they minister together. The story of the book of Acts is a story of God's working through his people, the apostles and disciples, to establish and spread His witness for Christ wherever He desires to send it. God is at work. He's always working in the lives of all His creatures. God sovereignly uses men and women for a time, for a season, before He moves them on to other places and other ministries. God is continually raising and training and preparing and equipping His people. God also removes and moves and takes His people out of our lives. When I was in uh, Bible school a number of years ago, and Heather and I were spending endless hours uh, discussing pastoral ministry with our old pastor and his wife, John and Lynn. And one day, Lynn said to us, as we were sitting around talking about all this, he said, one thing you will have to get used to in ministry, and you'll never get used to it, is saying goodbye. She was right. So one of the hardest things about being in ministry is saying goodbye to people. The church in Jerusalem had had to learn to say goodbye to their members, many of them over a short period of time. All of these changes that God sovereignly brings can be difficult to cope with. We get into wonderful seasons of fellowship and ministry, and encouragement, and help, and growth, enjoyment in the Christian life. We're enjoying great, intimate fellowship and friendship in ministry. And all of a sudden, one day, we're standing there at an airport gateway, and the door is closed, and somebody's gone. Or we're standing at a graveside, or we're standing like we were on Friday afternoon, remembering Edna, or like we will on this coming Thursday, remembering June. And we're hearing that people have gone. God has moved them out of our lives for His purposes. We're hearing they're leaving, perhaps for good reason. And even sadly, at times we hear about people leaving for unbiblical, bad, and possibly even sinful reasons. And those times can be difficult to cope with. The Jerusalem church had lost Stephen to martyrdom. They'd lost many brothers and sisters to persecution and martyrdom. They'd lost unknown witnesses leaving for missionary work all over the place. Philip had traveling ministry and now living in Caesarea. Barnabas had been called to the church in Antioch. James had been arrested, not released, but beheaded. Peter had also been arrested. And the word is that he will be brought out, sentenced to death, and also beheaded. So how did the church in Jerusalem 
cope with these kind of changes? How do we cope with these types of difficult changes? How do we deal with what Dr. John Piper once described as the bitter providences of God? Well, first question might be, what, what is providence? What do we mean by the phrase, the providence of God? God's providence is God's upholding, His directing, <clears throat> His disposing and governing of all His creatures by His infinite wisdom and knowledge to the praise of His glory for our ultimate good. God governs His creation, including the leaders and peoples in His church, for God's purposes, for our good, and for the glory of His name. I'm going to repeat that. God's providence is God's upholding, His directing, His disposing and governing of all His creatures by His infinite wisdom and knowledge to the praise of His glory. And He does it for our ultimate good. God governs His creatures, including the leaders and people in His church, for His purposes, for our good, and for the glory of His name. God's ultimate goal in providence is to bring all creation into submission to Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords over all creation, over all existence. The providences of God, while they are good and for God's glory, they are at times painful. They hurt. When God allowed the disciples to be beaten, it hurt. When devout men gathered up the bloody, broken body of Stephen for burial, they grieved with a loud lament. It hurt. No doubt, as they saw James, their friend and apostle, being beheaded, for it would have been public, it hurt. They grieved. They wept over the loss. When we bury loved ones, it hurts. When we say goodbye to friends and family leaving, it hurts. When we see people leave the church under good or bad circumstances, either way, we grieve, we feel the loss, and it hurts. Providences of God can cause the human heart to grieve. And I want us to see what God's providence will mean for the Jerusalem church and what it will mean for us when God exercises His providence in this church because God is always exercising His providence, His governing of all of His creatures. First thing I want us to notice, that God's providence means no human leader is irreplaceable. In verses 1 to 4, we see how God allows Herod to arrest some of the church, including James and Peter. And God, by His providence in chapter 12, removed both James and Peter James was removed and delivered from prison to glory. God delivered from, uh, Peter from prison to be used elsewhere. It's likely that Peter was ministering in northern Asia Minor in the provinces of Pontus and Galatias and Cappadocia and Asia, Bithynia, the, the places he wrote his epistles to. It's also likely that Peter went all the way to Rome and ministered there from where he wrote those two letters, First and Second Peter. God moved him on, but God was far from finished with him. God raises, God uses, God moves His under-shepherds, His leaders, into and out of His churches for His purposes. And we've all been in churches and felt the sting of sadness at the loss of a leader being moved on by God. Sometimes by God's design, a particular shepherd or teacher or missionary will serve for decades in a particular place. Uh, John MacArthur, as many of you know, has been ministering for 53 plus years. You know how I know? It's easy for me to keep track of how long he's been ministering. You take my age and add two months. That's how long he's been doing it. In the same pulpit, in the same church, 53 plus years. That's an incredible thing. You say, wow, we should all strive for long ministries. Robert Murray McShane ministered for a few years in a church in Scotland and left a profound legacy of writings and sermons, a godly man that God took very early in his life. He died at 29 years of age. But when we see that, And trusting in God's providence, we see that those movings of God's people are for His glory and for all of our good. 
in the history of this church. God brought Harry C. right here and used him here for a number of years, then moved him on to other areas of ministry for our good and for God's glory. All our good, not just us as a church, but every believer. God brought Brian Harper here and used him here for many years, then moved him on to other areas of ministry for our good and God's glory. When we, well, over there, when the old stage was in the, in the induction service, one of the questions that Wes asked me was, are you convinced that God has called you to come here? And I am convinced that God brought me here to Noble Park Baptist Church five and a half years ago. And until God moves me on to another field of labor, which could be this month, next year, or not for 20 plus years, until God sovereignly moves me on, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, If you'd like to take a moment to grieve over that fact, you're welcome to do so. But wherever God moves me, whenever God moves me, it will be for all our good and for His glory. But brother and sister, it's a very dangerous thing if we live with a mindset that says the church starts and stops with us. The church cannot continue and progress without us. That if we leave, the church will simply fall apart. Living with that mindset will hinder God's work among His people. God is not merely using you and I. God is also raising up the next generation of workers to use them. Even as James is being beheaded, Saul and Barnabas are busy in Antioch Church, which will become, in a short period of time, the central location of the early church. Even as Peter is in prison, James, the Lord's brother, is being recognized as a new leader of the Jerusalem church. God raises and uses and moves and uses again His people for His purposes. (coughs) Sorry, still getting over the flu. One of the most critical activities that we can be involved in in this church, in its leadership, is the preparation process of handing on the baton to the next generation of teachers and preachers and pastors and shepherds and elders and missionaries and evangelists and musicians, etc. In the providence of God, where God moves and removes His people for His purposes, no human leader is irreplaceable, is indispensable. In fact, One of the things that John asked me when we first got started in ministry, he looked at me one day and said, do you think you're indispensable to that church? I said, no way. He said, that's the right answer because the wrong answer, I would have stopped you in your tracks. No human leader is irreplaceable. And as Peter and James both arrested and James taken to glory and Peter moved on elsewhere, one of the things the church had to learn was God is absolutely indispensable. The church cannot exist and thrive without God, but every human leader, every member of this church is absolutely important to the ministry of the church, but none of us is indispensable. And you know what we saw in a little tiny church plant? We saw people come and we saw people go. We saw places left vacant. We thought, what are we going to do about that? And within a few weeks, maybe a few months, somebody else had come along. Uh, They're not here, so I can talk about them. Edward and Jess, right? God raised up a pianist to take and help and play. And it's a blessing. And one day when I'm gone, God will raise up somebody else. So first of all, God's providence, as we see it in the story before us, as Peter's being moved out of the way and James has been taken to glory, the leaders are not indispensable. Secondly, God's providence means His word will increase and endure regardless. In Acts 12 and verse 24, it's our passage. Following James's beheading, Peter's rescue, and Herod's death, Luke records the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, following the apostles' first suffering for their faith and witness, following the Ananias and Sapphira affair, following the installing of deacons, Luke records, listen, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. In Acts 13, verse 49, Paul and Barnabas are in Pisidian Antioch. They've preached the gospel in the synagogue. The Jews have rejected and blasphemed, the Bible says, meaning they spoke 
against Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas continue preaching to the Gentiles. And once again, Luke records, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Immediately afterward, Luke records that persecution rose up against them from the Jews. The Jews, But God's word prevailed. Acts 19 and verse 20. Paul and Silas are in Ephesus. They've been there preaching and teaching, working with a church plant there for about two years. All the converted magicians and sorcerers had burned all their books. And once again, Luke records, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. What's the, what's the point here? Good times and bad times, God's word grows, spreads, and increases. Leaders come and leaders go, and the word of God prevails and spreads. Persecution or peacetime, the word of God increases and spreads. Listen, God is... You know what Marcel said to us when he first got up here, the guy from Voice of the Martyrs? He spoke about the faithfulness of God to himself and to his word. I was like, yes! Amen. That's so true. God is faithful to himself and to his word. He's accomplishing all his purposes of bringing all things under one head who is Christ. And God has a purpose in allowing us, allowing for us what is difficult providences. And yet through them all, God is faithful. We need never fear that if some particular person leaves or is moved away, that the word of God will fail. God will not leave himself without a witness to Christ and the gospel. We respond to the difficult providences of God by trusting God's faithfulness to himself and to his word. We respond to the difficult providences of God by trusting God who is faithful to see his word increase and grow and spread. I'm sure that for the ladies of the KYB, seeing Edna retire and seeing Edna get sick, it must have felt like she was the one that spearheaded. For years, she was faithful with that. She's gone. God's moved her out of the way. And God raised up Ruby. And then one day, Ruby said, we're moving. And what are we going to do now? And God raised up Kath. And one day, Kath will move on. And what will they do? to watch while God raises up somebody else because God is faithful. He will not allow himself to be without a witness. His word will not fail. It will continue to grow and spread. We respond to those providences of moving people and losing people by trusting God that he knows what he's about. Thirdly, God's providence means no opposition will endure. Notice in verses 20 to 25, because Herod did not give glory to God, God struck him down and he died. A horrible death as it happens. Herod rose up in opposition to God's church, God's word, and ultimately against God himself. Herod exalted himself by allowing the statement that he was God to stand unopposed. But God does not share his throne with anybody. And Herod fell under God's horrific judgment. The great doctrine of the providence of God means that God's governing of all the affairs of all his creation with the singular goal of gathering all creation in submission to one head who is Christ. It means this, no opposition against God will endure, it will not stand. All opposition to God, the gospel, and God's people will ultimately fail. See, how do we know that? Look through history. Look through the Bible's story. In Exodus 12 to 14, Pharaoh of Egypt rose in opposition against God, against his word, and against God's people. And Pharaoh fell under God's judgment and wrath. There's a moment there where God says, Now I will get my glory from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh went into the, dead, into the Red Sea and drowned there. And the Bible says not even one of Pharaoh's army escaped. In 1 Kings 16 to 21, we see Queen Jezebel rising up in opposition against God's word and God's prophet Elijah. She ultimately fell under God's judgment exercised through Jehu thrown down from the window by her servants, trampled and crushed under the horse's hooves. 
nothing but the skull and the palms of her hands remaining. And God vindicated his word and his people. No opposition rising against God will succeed. All who oppose God and the gospel will face God's judgment. That's the certainty of the scriptures. In the book of Esther, Haman the Agagite arose up in furious, jealous opposition against God's people. And by his own pride and arrogance, Haman fell under the judgment of God exercised through the hand of Ahasuerus, Esther, and Mordecai. God's providence means opposition will not stand. Jesus said himself in Matthew 16 at verse 18. He identifies himself as a rock upon which he will build his church and not even the demonic government of hell will prevail against it. Even the greatest opponent in all of creation cannot prevail against God. We watch men in opposition to rise up in opposition to the gospel and the church. And in one sense, we grieve. Because opposition rising means that the gospel and the church won't be free. Well, it is free, really, but it won't be free like it is now. We won't be able to meet and to minister and to work in the community. We'll better have buildings like this where people come in openly to gather and worship with God's people. But you know what? Opposition has meant that it is impossible at times for those things, but we must never fear, we must never despair and lament that the church will fall under yet another opposition. It cannot For God is providentially working to preserve and sustain His church regardless of the opposition that rises against it. Herod was just another guy trying the same thing again and he fell into God's judgment. And you know what? For the governments of our land, the governments of this world who are rising steadily in opposition against God, they will all fall. Reality is, Christ is the victor. The devil is defeated. The battle's already won. The church cannot fail. God is righteous. He will judge all who oppose him and his word. And when opposition rises, as it is steadily doing in our day, we trust. We trust God's providence at work that it will not, it cannot endure. Time out. Anybody here pick up those little books about Richard Wormbrand and Sabina? Yeah, a couple of you. Anybody start reading by any chance? I started reading when I was sick. I started reading Richard's story. It's amazing the way the man writes. Uh, he and uh, I just tell one quick little story out of it. Uh, he's walking down the street one day, talking to some American uh, writer or reporter or something, and he excuses himself and he walks across the street. And there's a man coming the other way, and they stop and they meet and they embrace in the European way, kissing on each cheek, and they chat for a while. And the American's kind of overhearing the conversation, and he hears the name of the man. And he says to Richard as they walk on a little later, well, that's, that's amazing. That man has the very same name as the man that betrayed you to the communists and left you in jail for eight and a half years. And he said, well, everybody makes a mistake. That was the man that betrayed him. And Richard Wormbrad had an understanding through going through all those sufferings and all those difficulties of facing opposition to the gospel. He knew that it was part of God's sovereign plan. And he didn't despair over it. He knew God had a plan in it. And through all those circumstances he suffered, it gave him the freedom to forgive, to walk up to the man who resulted in him being in jail. Richard Wormbrad has something like 18 scars on his body where they stuck him with knives and burned him with cigarettes and all sorts of things. Horrific suffering, and he could hug and kiss on both cheeks the man that betrayed him, who, by the way, was now a believer. You know what? Opposition will arise. But in God's sovereign, providential working in the lives of all his people, all his church, it cannot and it will not prevail. Moving on. Fourthly, God's providence means no prayer goes unanswered. In verses 3 and 4, we see Herod, uh, sorry, Herod sees that James' death has pleased the Jews, and Herod now arrests Peter also. In verse 5, the church is fervently praying for Peter. Beloved, listen, God is in control, exercising his power and authority to bring about whatsoever he desires to. God allow, God's allowance 
and permission alone by that, Herod can arrest a man. Herod can imprison a man. Herod can, can secure a man to soldiers by chains on his left wrist and chains on his right wrist. Herod can post soldiers to his heart's content <clears throat> in all the hallways, at every door and every window. But listen, Herod cannot keep any man one second longer than what God intends. For God brings deliverance because God is sovereignly, providentially in control of everything. God brings Peter's deliverance out from locked chains on his wrist, past awake but unaware guards, through locked gates, out into Jerusalem streets. By the way, this is the second time that Peter has been delivered from prison by an angel. You know that? Go back to Acts chapter 5. The priests and Sadducees had arrested Peter, thrown him into the prison with the apostles. During the night, an angel comes, sets him free and says, go back to the temple courts and keep preaching. I'd be thinking, how about we go to another place and keep preaching? No, 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 go back to the temple courts and keep preaching. And they go and they keep preaching. It's the second time being delivered. God delivers his people because God is sovereignly in control. God had delivered Stephen through martyrdom to glory. God had delivered James through martyrdom to glory. And God was, in a day yet to come for Peter, going to deliver him through martyrdom on a cross to glory. But for this day, God delivered him out of prison to further ministry elsewhere. Brothers and sisters, in the last two weeks, we've seen God deliver Fiona, my friend, at 44 years of age. He delivered her from cancer through death to glory. We saw... Just over a year ago, God delivered Helen from long-term illness through death to glory. We saw just this last week, a week and a half ago, Edna delivered from cancer and COVID through death to glory. We saw just this last week, June Lyle delivered from the terrible flu, from all her many long-term ailments through death and into glory. And God will deliver all of us if Christ does not return through death to glory. It might be by cancer, it might be by a car accident or old age or any number of means that God chooses. But God will not allow the circumstances of this life to separate us from him. And all that, while God is delivering Peter, the church is fervently, diligently, late at night. It's probably past midnight and they're praying for him. So given all I just said about God's sovereign control, should we pray? If God is sovereign in control of everything going on, should we pray? You all should be doing this. Yeah. 1,000 times, yes, absolutely. Two things I want to say here very carefully about prayer and God's sovereignty. Number one, God sovereignly uses the prayers of his people as part of his exercise of his control in all things. God calls his people to pray. God commands his people to pray. God waits for his people to pray. God hears the prayers of his people. God uses the prayers of his people for his purposes. God answers the prayers of his peoples always. And sometimes God answers his people's prayer exactly as they pray and ask. In this case, God delivered Peter from prison in answer to his people's prayer, which brings me to the second thing I want to say about prayer. God always answers prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. I was chatting on the phone with Ken when right after they made the decision that Irene would discontinue chemotherapy. And he looked at me and he, not looked at me, he spoke to me and he said, why is it we think that until God gives us what we're asking for, he hasn't answered our prayers. He said, doesn't God answer no sometimes? And I said, you know what, Ken? You're absolutely right. We have this idea that God hasn't answered my prayer till I get what I want. No, sometimes God answers no. Sometimes we pray for a miraculous deliverance, like in the life of James. I'm absolutely convinced that the church was gathered and praying for James' release but the answer was no. I've got something better for James. Not back to the church, but up to glory. Sometimes 
the prayer answer is no. The church was fervently praying for James' release, but the answer was no. God, for His own purposes, freed James from prison to glory. And brothers and sisters, we must pray in Jesus' name. It means we pray for the things that Jesus desires to give us. We see that in Scripture. We pray in submission to His will. We pray in agreement with what the Bible teaches. We pray with God's glory as the ultimate goal of all our prayers. Brother and sister, we must also pray in the understanding that sometimes God's simple answer is no. You say, you got any illustration? The best yet. God's own or Jesus' own prayer in Gethsemane makes that absolutely clear. My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And the answer was no. You must drink the cup to the last bottom bitter dreg. And he did. If anyone deserved to have a prayer heard and answered, surely it was the Lord Jesus himself. We pray in submission to God's will. We pray knowing that God uses our prayers. We pray knowing that God is in sovereign control of all things. God is in sovereign control, but God is not in submission to our prayers. It's an important lesson for us. Sometimes we get the idea that we just keep praying, and we should, that God will eventually give us everything. And when He finally gives us what we want, then then He's answered our prayers possibly the answer is no. We need to learn to pray in submission to God's, um, God's sovereignty and God's control. He is not compelled or required to give us all we ask for in prayer. He knows what is best for us. It's like that little guy, there's a little cartoon we had in Canada called uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody here ever seen Calvin and Hobbes? Besides me, a couple of you, yeah. It's this great cartoon. Little kid, he's probably about six years of age. He has a, a stuffed tiger that when nobody's around, the stuffed tiger comes to life. And he's this great big tiger that is his playmate and his friend. And one day he goes to his mother and he, and he tries to do the puppy dog eyes thing. He looks at his mom and he says, Mom, can I have a flamethrower? And his mom's like, no. And he comes back a little later. He says, Mom, can I have a million dollars? No. Well, then can I have a cookie? No. And so your mom just keeps answering no. And this little guy's like, he's so frustrated. He's trying everything he can to make his mom give him what he wants. But his mom is wise. She knows a flamethrower in the hands of a six-year-old kid. It's not a good idea, generally speaking. She knows that a million dollars in her little six-year-old kid's hand, even if she could do it, it's not a good idea. And she knows in wisdom that there are things that they don't give your children because they'll do damage to themselves and those around them if you do. And so the answer is no. And brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes we pray for things that God in His fatherly wisdom looks down at me and says, no, no, that's not a good idea. And in grace, in goodness to you, I'm not going to give you what you ask for. Moving on. God's providence fifthly means no believer can ever be separated. Notice in verses 5 and 6, on the night Peter was to be brought forward, Peter was sleeping. Sleeping. You're about to be executed. What are you going to do? I don't think I'd catch 40 winks right about that. I think I'd be busy doing other things, maybe writing a few letters or sending an email or something. But no, Peter, Peter's sleeping. Well, first we have to understand the phrase brought forward in our text or brought out is indicative of condemnation. Peter wasn't going to be tried with lawyers accusing and defending and evidence and all that. He was going to be brought out. The charges under which he would be condemned would be read out and he would be sentenced to death, execution to be carried out immediately. And yet here he was on the night that's going to happen, sleeping. Sleeping so soundly that the angel in an almost comic moment has to hit him on the side to wake him up. How could Peter sleep so soundly? He had no notion of his deliverance beforehand. And while being delivered, he thought he was just seeing a vision. So how could he sleep so soundly? How could Peter have so great a peace about all that was happening in his life, in the life of the church, How can, brother and sister, you and I have such a great peace before God? 
Peter knew several things. He had been told by the Lord Jesus at his commission that one day they would lead him out where he did not want to go to have his hand stretched out, meaning crucifixion. And I'm convinced that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, (coughs) excuse me, because of God's providential care and working in his life that nothing could separate him from God's love in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, we have the great list. Not tribulation nor distress, not persecution nor famine, not nakedness, peril, or sword, which in his case is a very relevant thing. Not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, nothing. Peter was at peace despite his looming execution to the point that he slept soundly while waiting for it to come. Peter was at peace with God and within himself. Brothers and sisters, how can we... Facing difficult providences in our lives have that great peace, that great reassurance that when providences of God are bitter and difficult, nothing will separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. And of course, the answer is the gospel. That's how we know. Peter knew that Christ had died for him. Peter knew that his sin had been borne by Christ on a cross. Peter knew his sin had been forgiven by God, even though he denied him three times. And you can imagine that scene on the beach, right? Peter, do you love me? Number one, yes, Lord, you know know I like you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you, you know. You know all things. You know I like you. Peter, do you love me? Three times, three times denied, three times asked. And Peter was commissioned to feed the sheep of God. He knew that as he was commissioned, Jesus even told him ahead of time, when you're restored, restrengthen your brethren. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew his role there. Peter knew that he had been restored by Christ on the beach. He knew his life would end violently, but like his beloved Lord, he would be raised to life, to glory, and to reign with Christ in his kingdom. Peter knew that whatever circumstances he would endure, Christ would never leave him nor forsake him. Peter knew that the work of God begun in him would be completed by God whether it was with a sword blow or a crucifixion or old age like John on Patmos. Peter knew that his death, while painful in the moment, was merely a doorway to being face-to-face with his beloved Lord Jesus for all of eternity. Peter was trusting in God, was trusting God's providence as as only for his good. If they took him out and bent him over a post and took his head off with a sword, he knew it was by God's permission for his good and God's glory. Whatever we encounter and deal with in our lives, whatever God, what difficult providences God brings, we have the absolute assurance that God is working all things together for one goal in mind, to bring everything into submission under Christ including you and I. God is working all those things in our lives to shape us and make us more into the image of Christ. The gospel that tells us, take your Bibles and flip over to Romans 8. This verse kept coming back in my mind all through my time here this morning when I was preparing. And I just got to go there and read it because it just makes sense. Listen to what it says. Romans 8 and beginning at verse 31, Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who is against us? It's exactly what we're saying before. The opposition will not stand by God's providence. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Peter knew on the solid assurance of the gospel that he had been declared right by God. And whatever the Romans would say, whatever the Roman soldier would do to him to take off his head, whatever they would do when they crucified him, all of that was besides the point. God had declared him righteous. He had the peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding that in face of those difficult providences of even losing his life, he could sleep soundly at night knowing that he was absolutely secure in Christ. 
And brother and sister, you and I, having come to know Jesus Christ by faith in Him and repentance of sin, we have that absolute assurance in us that no matter what happens to us in this world, it comes from God's hand. The difficult, bitter providences of God that cause us to grieve and yet grieve with hope. We grieve when people die. It's right. It's good. Jesus stood outside the tomb of His friend and wept that his friend had died and raised him from the dead. He still grieved over it. We grieve that Edna has passed away. We grieve that June has passed away. We grieve over all those dear beloved brothers and sisters who have passed away. But we do so with an absolute hope based on the gospel that we will see them again. One day, you will all stand around. Maybe my casket will be here. You might grieve a little bit. And I fall for a certainty, I'll see you again, and you'll see me. That's the certainty, that's the hope of the gospel. But outside of the gospel, there is absolutely no hope whatsoever. How do, I don't understand how people outside of Christ can handle all those terribly difficult things they go through, that this world happens, cancer, COVID, Financial collapse, relationships torn apart, families torn apart, marriages blown apart, lives destroyed. How do they deal with it? Outside of Christ, there's no hope. There's no re- All you can do is self-medicate and try and dull the pain. But with Christ, walking with Christ, knowing Christ, trusting Christ, we can get through all those difficult moments because we know We're convinced that God is good, that God's providential working in our lives is for our good. To give an illustration, I was just feeling underneath the edge of the pulpit here, and I was was realizing when I, I remember when I made this thing, that I used a piece of plywood I had in my shop, and I was just thinking about woodworking for a split second as my mind wandered. And I thought about a plane, and you take a block of wood, and I relate to wood well. It's hardened dense and solid, kind of like me. You take a block of wood and you stick it in a vise and you grab a a plane and you pick it up and sometimes there's knots that stick up. And knots are really great. You grab the plane and you're sliding along and the shaving's coming off. It's beautiful. And you hit the knot. And then you just about knock yourself over because the knot catches the blade and everything stops. And it kind of hurts a little bit. And then you have to pull back and you just kind of work over that knot with the plane until the plane levels it all off and smooths it all down. And the picture is this. God is the master craftsman and he holds the plane of his providences and he's working on your life and he's working away and he's working away. And sometimes the shavings come off smooth and sweet and have that beautiful smell about them and sometimes he hits a knot in your life and he has to back up and work away to take away that knot. What's he trying to do? He's trying to shape you and make you into the image of Christ. He has to remove whatever doesn't look like Christ and he has to make you more like Christ. And sometimes the shavings come off easy and sometimes they come off hard and sometimes it hurts when they get taken off. But through it all, we trust that the pain we're experiencing in that moment is by God's design for our good and for God's glory. What a great God we serve, amen? What a a hope we have because of who Christ is. No matter what's going on in this world, no matter what happens, even in our own churches, people leaving, people departing to glory, people moving on for good reasons and bad, God is in control. He is working for His glory and our good through all those difficult moments. All right, let's pray. And then we're going to sing one more song. Would you stand with me as we pray together? And then we'll sing. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and, O God, we would lift up our hearts to you in worship and praise for the living God, for the God who loved us and was willing to give His own Son that we might be set free, we might be delivered from the power and the presence of sin.
Father, we look forward with great anticipation the day when the presence of sin, the influence of sin in our lives will be completely done away with and we will stand face to face gazing with adoring eye upon the Lord Jesus Christ, rubbing shoulders again with Edna and June and Helen and Phyllis and Fiona and so many others, Lord, that we have loved and seen gone home to glory. Father, we give thanks for that hope that we have. Father, we thank you and we praise you that your providence is at work. Father, we thank you that by your sovereign design, no human leader is irreplaceable. Father, we thank you. I praise you, O God, that even now in this very church, you are preparing and training and equipping young men and young women to step into our place as we step off the scene to take our place, to carry the baton in the next part of this great relay race that is the church's history. Father, I give thanks. I praise you, O God, that despite what happens to us as men and women, the failings that we exercise, the mistakes we make, the word of God will continue to spread and increase. The word of God will not return void. Father, we praise you for your great and your holy word. Father, we praise you also that no opposition in history has ever endured and no opposition against us will ever endure or stand the test of time. But Father, you will bring every opposition into your judgment and deal with it righteously and justly. And Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, this morning for all those difficult, bitter providences that each of us are encountering and struggling through. Father, we thank you that nothing will separate us from you, from the love of God in the Lord Jesus. Father, we give thanks. No persecution, no sword, no peril, no angel, no demon, not life nor death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that we have that enduring hope, a great hope that you, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never leave us nor forsake us, that you who began this good work in us are going to finish it all the way to the end. Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. And we give thanks in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.